Today's Wednesday. It is um, 8-19 already, 2020, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Thank you, Father, for this hour we have this evening. We thank you for those who have joined as well. And Father, we, as we're in this world, we continue to ask for wisdom and guidance as we navigate our way through these difficult times. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are right in the midst of uh, Romans, right? In Romans chapter 8. And where we are, this is some of the, some of where we came from. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if, we, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that's where we are, that verse. So we looked at half of it. We looked at the suffering part last week, and hopefully we'll look at the part that deals with the glory that will be revealed in us this week. So before we do, we're going to pause for a minute to see if there are any thoughts, uh, questions, uh, ideas from last week or any other week. And uh, I just want to open the floor for our normal Q&A period. Go right ahead, Dave. We talk about, we talk about um, like in the old summer, they have Jesus on his glory. Now, does he represent Christ? We have that glory, too. I'm sorry. Okay, could you repeat that one more time for me, please? So you mean like the glory that was on the face of Moses? Yes. And and so your question is, are we going to have that kind of glory that fades, or? Well, we're going to have a glory that that I'm just thinking that our glory won't fade like the way Moses did. Our glory will, will, will last. Right. So. Okay, so so the glory that you're referring to then that we have, because the verse says, "I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us." So that glory, right. that glory, we're going to be talking about that. And is it like? So your question is, is it like what Moses had, but not fading? Is that what your question? Well, is? Moses had Moses had a temporary uh, fading though, because he didn't have the he didn't have the baptism of the spirit like we were. I think it would be different, although. Yeah, so I think when, okay. but when we're dealing with the glory uh, on the battlefield, we're talking about battlefield glory. Then uh, we share in that. And we're, we're going to talk about this a little later, just to set us some okay. some some of the expectations. So, if we think about it, our calling. 
is really not this earth. Uh, so whatever we get in terms of our glory when it comes to this earth is extra glory, is extra opportunity. And the reason why we can, we can be glorified in, on this earth is because Christ was glorified as a man on this earth. He gives us the opportunity to have the same um, opportunity to get glory as he did, on, to, to earn glory on this earth. And we, we're going to have that uh, at, in the millennium. That's, that's where it will be. I'm hearing a little background noise. That might be you, Dave. Okay. I just hear some background noise. I got my wheels up, so it could be. I'm not sure. Okay, to, to try putting your phone on mute until until you okay. And, okay. until you have a comment, right? Because then I'm hearing background noise. So, so what I'm trying to say in all of this is there's a there's going to be glory for people who are resurrected and on the earth. And that could also be David and Moses and the disciples. But that's their calling to, to be on this earth. Our calling is a heavenly calling. So even though we get to share in Christ's glory, his battlefield victory, that is not necessarily what we've been called to. So there is another glory that belongs to us that they can't share. We're going to talk about what that is. We're going to talk about the glory that is on the earth. So there's two ways to look at this. Our calling is a heavenly calling. But if we get to share in the, in the glory that's on earth, that's a secondary thing. Because our primary purpose is what God called us to from eternity past. And that's, that itself has an inherent glory within it. Because of who we are and what we've been called to, sons of God. But then, this whole glory that is on the earth also has another thought to it. We're gonna, we're gonna, and we're, we'll talk about how both both of those are combined in Christ. We'll, we'll see how that works. But I don't know if that makes sense about when we think about what happened to Moses or not. But uh, Moses had a unique experience. Everybody familiar with the experience of Moses? Yeah, I was at the Moses, he had a bell. The Bible said he had a bell. And then when the bell was taken away, that glory had to faded. Yes. But now, even in that... So, so there's there's something. Um, it's something more glorious about what we have than what they had, and Second Corinthians three deals with that. If you want, you can turn there, and we can get a a quick review of some of the things that we discussed way back when. <laughs> How long ago was that? It was a year ago at least that we were on Second Corinthians, right? Three. We've gone. Well, it might even be longer than that, but 
so in Second Corinthians 3, it talks about this glory that's ours. So, uh, now, if we look at, he's talking about the different ministries of the Spirit we have. Uh, look at 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, it was. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So he's, talk, he's comparing the age of Israel and the age of the church. That's what he's comparing, those two things. So, verse 10, for what was glorious? Oh, I hear some background noise. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Alright, so, if you look at verse 10, what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. So, our the glory that we have in the church age is what they call surpassing glory. It is, it is not, and then he even says it, right, in verse 11. And if what was transitory, transitory means temporary, right? It was only here for a minute and it's gone. It came with glory. He's talking about the old covenant. He's talking about what happened with Moses. How much greater is the glory which lasts? I don't know if you were talking about or, or thinking about that when you were looking asking the question. So verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Now get this this part here when he talks about this hope. Because remember, this is part of where we're going later, but for us, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like that's part of our destiny, what God has planned for us from eternity past. The hope, the absolute confidence of glory. So, then verse 13, he goes on, We are not like Moses, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. So now, we went back into Exodus, and we looked at the story, and we discovered that when Moses went up and communed with God in the mountain, and when he came down from the mountain, he didn't really know it but his face was glowing it was there was a glow radiating from his face but so then what happened and he goes on and says what what it was but paul is summing it up to make an analogy out of it he's he's drawing a metaphor from what happened with moses and he's going to make a point so he says what happened to moses was the israelites were afraid of Moses. And so what they did was they realized that, wait a minute, I don't want you to be afraid. It's just me, Moses. So Moses ended up putting a veil over his face when he talked to the people because uh, they were afraid of looking into the face of Moses with that glory on it. So... So let, back to 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because it is only, only in Christ is it taken away. So what he's saying in this, so the veil, is Paul is using it metaphorically to say that the Jews don't want to see what God has for them, right? The Turning to Christ, obviously, the, he's going to say the veil is taken away. 
So he's using this as an analogy that says that the Jews were stuck. They didn't want to hear from Moses with the glory on his face. They didn't want to see what was passing away because the glory on Moses' face was fading. But Paul's making that a point to say that what came the Old Testament, right, what was happening with all those types and shadows, that was not to be permanent. That was to pass. That was something that was transitory. And, of course, they didn't want to see it go away because they like it. They enjoy it. And you look to this day, what do you have? You have the Jews still focused on Old Testament theology. They, 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 are, they will not move from that. It is, so Paul is saying this. He's saying it's like, it's a, like what happened with Moses. They, were, they like the veil over their face. They enjoy that because they don't want to see the Mosaic law passing away. So that's what he's saying. He's drawing that analogy. So look at verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. So what, what is he saying? He's, they don't want to see the Mosaic law go away. Because that glory, fading though it was, they did not want to see the end of what was the Mosaic Law, even though it was a type, it was a shadow, it was, uh, you know, depicting something that was going to end because God had something greater in mind. So, verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, because they can see now, because they turn to Christ. Yeah, so, so that's how, how he uh, weaved the veil into Second Corinthians chapter 3 toward the end. I'll pause. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Because I was looking at that also, like, where Christ, what he was seated at the right hand of the Father after he defeated Satan. If you gave him the Father what is to do, I was looking at the glory that he has that we'll have too. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, so so one of the things um, around that is if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, right, uh -huh. and you look at <clears throat> this point. Now, I'm not sure when we talked about this, or we have talked about it, but we didn't uh, talk about the last time we, we visited these verses. So in v Ephesians 1, verse 18 and following, right? There's some pretty lofty verses. Let's read a couple of them. So I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as his mighty strength. And then he's going to give this analogy in the next three, two or three verses, which he exerted. When he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So we know this is really talking about us. This is not, the point is not correct, but he gives the analogy that fits us because we're identified with the person of Christ. So when we says Christ is raised far above all rule, we are raised far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So when, we, when he says this, so when we talk about the, the death, burial, 
uh, resurrection, ascension, and session. The ascension part is where Christ rose above. He didn't just rise past all of those principalities, powers, dominions. He rose, he had, God had the power to raise him to those heights because of his accomplishments on earth and what he did. He completed the Father's plan. And this is where we talk about he defeated Satan and all of his evil angels, right? He triumphed over them. So what, is ha what happens? He now has a seat far above all of them in any title, any dominion, no, no matter what now or in any future period. Christ is far above all rule and authority. So his ascension took power. It didn't just happen like a balloon, a uh, hot air balloon just rising to the top. It, was, it took power, and the power is the power of the Father that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That means he was able to bring Christ to a place higher than any ruling authority that there was ever or ever will be. So, so from that sense, there's a glory attached to the glory that Christ won in the victory over earth. So we've talked about it from the standpoint of uh, there's a couple different ways to think about it. We, we talked about it from the standpoint of uh, triumphing over those evil angels. But there's a power and a glory that goes with that that we're going to talk about going forward in, in Romans 8. So I'll pause to see if the other other thoughts are there. No, thanks. I appreciate that. Because I was thinking about that and also about the verse. It's still the verse that said that we are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. I was thinking about that verse too. Yes. Yeah. So that, because of who we are, we're children. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. I remember we talked about before, that's, that's like Romans. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We are heirs. And Roman-style adoption is, is the order of the day there. You know, what... Because I was looking at that verse that said we're heirs of God, but they also said we're co-heirs of Christ. Yeah, yeah. That's where... Um, so this is, this is not just uh, us getting a father and a mother you know, type adoption. This is the type of adoption where there is a huge transfer of power. And the transfer of power is really not to us. It's, I mean, we are not necessarily the recipients of this power, but Christ is. And what the baptism of the Spirit does, though, is it unites us with the person of Christ. So God has directed all of this power, this transfer to his son. And then he turned around and, and he made us united with the son through the baptism of the spirit, which means we share everything he is and has. So by virtue of that, we receive the adoption. Not because God does, he wants to just give us something. And he doesn't give us anything directly. He gives it to Christ. And Christ is the one who shares it with us. Now, it's not just Christ's idea. It is the Father's plan. But we need to know how he did it. Not just the fact that we have, you know, this elevated position and this 
this glory that we're talking about. We, we have it because this is the way God did it in this manner. So it's important for us to know that. I'll pause. Other thoughts? Hey, um, I just wanted to add to that, and I think you'll be you'll probably addressing some of the questions in um, the talk about Romans eight eighteen and the glory. Um, but I, I see it from several different perspectives, and that is that obviously in the Old Testament we're talking about the physical glory of Moses that was overwhelming um, to the Israelites. And yet, in the glory that has been revealed to us in First Corinthians chapter two, is that battlefield glory that um, you know we have we have the ability through humility and capacity um, to understand the deep things of God through the Spirit freely given to us. Um, and yet, the rest of the world cannot see it. So it is, it is strictly spiritual; they, they wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, even even a, a saved person who is not um, mindful of the ways of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet in the coming glory, the glory that is to be revealed in us, there is going to be a an, an audience beyond us. So it'll be revealed in us, but also there will be other heavenly beings that will witness this as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I suppose... Yeah, and I suppose that even that is different from Ephesians two seven, where where we talked about the uh, immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness in, in Christ Jesus. Um, I, I think that's above and beyond the glory that will be revealed in us. Absolutely. Well, how do you feel about that? Okay. <laughs> I like it. I like uh, where you know that's the thought. In fact, I'm glad you, you said it that way because you're distinguishing that there is more than one type of glory that we have. That's, that's, in fact, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, uh, and I was trying to establish that earlier. I'm not sure if I did a good job or not. The fact that this is our calling, right? There's a glory that is associated with our calling. And then there is also a glory that he's talking about associated with us uh, suffering and what that parlays into later so all of it is going to be uh in fact it's it's definitely thought-provoking right so i was writing something about it and this is what i wrote regarding that uh i said um actually it's it wasn't on 818 it was on 819 and maybe you'll get it again next week it says um there is, 8.19 says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And I said, there is a thought-provoking relationship between the children of God, the glory, and all creation. We should note the extent of our role is not anything we can imagine. It goes beyond our wildest imaginations. Quote, not now to him who was able to do immeasurably immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. For those comparisons made 
we are not equipped to understand our eternal role in its fullness. Paul says it is not worth comparing. And he says it's an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So when it comes to suffering in this world, what kind of glory is this? We have to really begin to think. So I, I didn't finish writing, but this is the idea of who we are. When it tells you that something in us is going to affect all creations, imagine the power that is associated with us affecting all creation. You can't imagine. I mean, think about a man on earth right now. We may have powerful, important people, but they don't affect all creation. There is no such thing as something that can affect all creation. I, I, don't, I don't have any words to describe the level of what God has done for us in this. It is outstanding, it's huge, it's magnanimous. I don't know, we can throw words at it, but all of these things don't compare because we, there's nothing that we can compare it with. And Paul even says, he says, it's not even worth comparing with what's going to happen in you. It's not, it's, it's far outweighs whatever little bit of suffering you had, that little bit of time, and what God is making in you is just not something we can compare. So we're, we're going to take it apart. Those are great observations. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get an understanding of what, what this glory is, what glory is in general, and all of that. So, other thoughts? Very good, thanks. All right, well, what we'll do... Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I had a thought, but uh, you're right on it, and I would be getting ahead if I asked the question. So it, it has to do with Romans 8.21 uh, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, creation. Yeah. Uh, so he starts in 8.19 talking about the effect of all creation that looking, in other words, the glory that all creations as sons of God are going to be revealed. Yeah. So these are some verses that I've always kind of uh, been very intrigued with. So they're upcoming. There's no need. Let's just get into it. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And, and <laughs> that's right on the thought of where we are. So we, we need to talk about it. Let's let it develop. We're going to be in those verses uh, momentarily, so won't cover them all today. But uh, but uh, we're going to slowly take our time and try to soak in as much as we can about these verses. So, and we'll need discussion on them too, right? Let's not just let whatever I say be the last word. Uh, let's discuss what the implications are and what does this make of us, right? What, as I say at the end, what kind of glory is this? <laughs> so. I mean, if it has this effect, it's greater than a tidal wave. Imagine that. So uh, we're going. Let's let's get into. So Romans, 
8.18. So where we left off last week was we, we began to start talking about this glory. And we talked about the calculation that, that Paul made. Right? He says it is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we, we said that that word, logizumai, is where Paul made the calculation and how he figured it. He, he After he made the calculation and he looked on both sides of it, he says, now, is this equal to that? Or is this greater than that? So finally, after he finished looking at the calculation, he said it's not even worth comparing. So that says that it's off the chart. So you ever be writing on a paper and then you don't have any more and then you continue on another area line? But he's saying it just keeps on going. It's just off the paper. There's, you can't compare it. It's not even worth going through the comparison because it is so far out of proportion with the suffering that we exert to the glory that God will recompense us with. It is so far out of, out of uh, the context of that. So it's not even so. So you can't you can't even look at the suffering and say, yeah, because of this, that. Nope, it, it does not compute. Paul saying, does not compute. So so we have to look at the sufferings in order to evaluate them. We have to know what the suffering is, and now what we want to do is start looking at the glory that we what, why it's not worth comparing. We have to look at the glory that will be revealed in us. These are some serious promises that we have. When you, when you begin to estimate uh, what God has done for the children uh, of men, uh, you know, those in Adam who have been redeemed, because in Adam's race, you know, Adam fell, but God saved people in Adam. He had a salvation plan for those who were lost in Adam. So when he saved them, they didn't automatically get into Christ. They just were saved, and those who they were still in Adam, redeemed, and they have a destiny where they're going to have a resurrection body. They're going to have his reward will be with with him to reward everyone according to what they have done, and he 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 will sum up all things. But when it comes to us, there's something very special going on beyond that we're in Christ and that is unique and this is the only way you can be in Christ is either you from Pentecost to the rapture are is the boundaries so so it it is not as he says not worth comparing not worth comparing so this glory let's look at a couple verses that deal with uh, the glory that will be revealed in us. I'm going to go to, to Dwight's verse, which uh, he didn't know I was going in there, but uh, here we go. So 1 Corinthians 2.7, he says, well, we might read 2.6 first. Why not? So we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So it's something else. No, we, we declare God's wisdom a mystery. So when he says a mystery, he's talking about the age-defining information that belongs to us. That has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began. So there it is. He destined, this information related to the mystery is destined for our glory before time began. So part, before time began is before the creation of all things. So when God created the universe, that started time. So he destined this glory for us before time began. It was before the creation of all things. And already there's a wisdom about it because it has to do with the plan of God, the plan of the Father. So we always talk about, well, it's the deep things of God, it's the mind of Christ, it's right, right? It's eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. What God has prepared for us who love him. So all of this has to do with what God had planned for us from eternity past and, and put into action is why we're here right now. But there's a glory associated with it. There's a glory. So what we said before, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, my glory I will not give to another. And he, there was, if you look at those verses that talk about God's glory, it is very unique in, in that he, he reserves that glory for himself. But how is it that we can have this glory? It is because of what we just described earlier, that God didn't directly give us some glory. This glory belongs to the Son, and we share all that the Son has. So when the Father looks at the Son, he sees us. And he, see, he sees the Son, but he also sees us. So that's the first thought, is to look at that scripture, to know that there's very something very special. I don't know who, when people look at this scripture what they see. But to me, 1 Corinthians 2.7 ties a lot of this together with our particular age. You can't tell me this wisdom was destined for Israel. Can't tell me this is this this wisdom was destined for Gentiles in the Old Testament. This is something that was had been hidden, and and God revealed at this time. So we're talking from Pentecost to the Rapture. This is a very special thing. He destined it for our glory before time began. Before time began says it is God's eternal purpose. So we know. That a glory is due us before time began. Now, we know it now. We didn't know it when we were born. We didn't know it until when we got saved. We only understood this when God uh, allowed us to, to understand the revelation that he gave to those apostles and prophets in this age. So, if we also look at, there's a couple other verses to consider. Colossians 1.27, uh, you, you probably uh, knew about this one. Uh, this is very typical when it comes to the mystery. So it says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, this is Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glorious riches here mentioned. And it has to do with the mystery. There's something grand about what God has done. And the knowledge of it, 
right? If we go down further in Colossians, it talks about it from the standpoint of, you know, if I were to go to uh, Colossians chapter 2, for instance, it talks about it from this point of view. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we can know about this information. It's Paul's goal to make it known, make it plain to us. We can know about it, but there's a glory that's associated with Christ in us that we cannot phantom so easily. So we can read the scriptures about it, like I was saying before, it's, uh, it's not anything that's in this world. And Paul is tripping all over himself trying to describe it in terms of riches and unsearchable wealth, bottomless wealth that can't be plumbed. And it's, it's the righteous uh, wealth, uh, the unsearchable wealth that that is described is referring to what God has made of us. So, and, you know, these are just descriptions of it. So I want to... And then if you go to um, Colossians uh, 3, right, we, we start getting closer to this now, Colossians 3, and we can look at uh, verses 4, right? So when Christ, who is your life, now this, those four words, Christ who is your life. So we talk about Christ's life being merged with our lives, his person with our person. Our lives are merged with him, so much so that we are said to be one with him. This is a further description of what it means for us to be one with Christ. This is a further description of what the baptism of the Spirit has done to us without our even knowing it. It has merged our lives with the life of Christ. That doesn't mean... We're in authority over Christ. He's in authority over us, as it says. So he, is, he is the head and we are the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He has authority in the body. He's the head. We're the body. But he is our life. So when he appears, then you also will appear with him. Now notice, it's in glory. So the, the glory is from Christ. Whatever we have is the result of what, the work of God on our behalf, which is what he has done, where he baptized us into the person of Christ. We share his life. We share his destiny. When he appears, we're going to appear. We share his glory. Right, we, we, the sons of waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Right, uh, the suffering that we have is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Notice the revealed is not just; it doesn't even say it's going to be revealed in Christ. It says it will be revealed in us. That's so, so, so that we don't say, "Well, Christ is going to let us have a little bit of His glory." No, people are going to see us, and they're going to see Christ. That's what they're going to say. And I've said this before, and I'm hoping, right, if you remember, 
we talk about the church as though, um, you know, it's Christ and the church, Christ and the church. But when, when Christ appears, we'll also appear with him in glory. It is not Christ and the church. It's just Christ. That's who it is. And who make, what makes up Christ? We do. We are his body. We are the fullness of him. And that word fullness means we're, we're filling up a deficiency. Or you look at a cup and it's half full. And how do you get to fill a cup? That is what we call fullness or pleroma in the Greek. We are that pleroma for Christ. So what the Father planned for Christ from eternity past was that he, that he bring many sons into glory. How would he do it? That those sons will be conformed into his image and his likeness. So we are just like he is in every respect. Whether it comes to his life, his destiny, his glory, his relationships with the Father and the Spirit. Everything that we have is what he has. So, so Colossians tells that story. It, it shows the results of the baptism of the Spirit, which we so desperately need to see. So here's another one, Hebrews. Hebrews 1. And we've looked at this before. All of these scriptures we looked at before. 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory. It's, the radiance is like the brightness of His glory. The exact representation of his being so here we are seeing that the manifestation that god wants to give of himself if we were to say what is god like and another person said well you can't know because god is invisible you can't see god it's, you know rome uh, not romans but john 4 tells us that god is a spirit so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth yeah, those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Those who worship in spirit and truth. The spirit and truth, what is that? That's the Holy Spirit that we're talking about. The spirit of truth that's coming uh, to the to, uh, Pentecost. Spirit and truth is you can't see a spirit. You can only see the manifestation. So but when God decided to uh, take on a human body, he now has a visible manifestation. When we say God, we're talking about God the Son. He became flesh. But we, when we say he became flesh, he didn't, God the Son didn't morph into from God to flesh. He took on flesh, which means he now has two natures and one person forever. He will always have two natures and one person forever. So he is the exact representation of his being. So, so when we talk about the uh, when we talk about the glory of God, now we know that the glory of God is the actual visual representation or manifestation of God that He wants to display. Now I know we'd like to think, oh, you know, God is, you know. He, he appeared as a billows of smoke, or he appeared, you know, the thunder and the lightnings and all of this, and the darkness and the clouds and 
all these things and the rumblings and God can appear. He, he can manifest in many ways. But what he's saying here is here's the way I want to be manifested. So we can look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. See, here it is seen how God the Father has this plan, and Christ is an agent in the plan. Christ has a role to play. And in this role, what does he say? The sun is the radiance of God's glory. So I want to stop for a minute there because I want you to realize something. Whenever he talks about the sun, he is also talking about us. This is, this is who Christ is, but this is also who we are because we are in him. We are part of who he is. And when we say who he is, we're not just talking about the person of Christ, because this is God's ideal for the person of Christ from the plan. He's speaking from that eternal purpose. So the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. This is where it says, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So notice, the, the, the Christ who is in heaven, right? He is, he is a man and he is also God. He has two natures, but he's one person. And every, he didn't have to be elevated in his deity. He was already higher than angels, but in his humanity... He was raised to this level where well, he, is the, he is the ruler of all things. He is the, the radiance of his glory, exact representation of his being. This is what God wants to portray of himself. And he's using the sun and the glory that emanates from the sun as the divine stamp of approval and authority over all things. So when people look at Christ, they're going to see that that is the Father. They're going to see that that is the plan. They're going to see God when they look at Christ. But they now have a visible manifestation that's permanent. It's not like when he appeared to Moses with the burning bush and the bush never burned up. It just kept burning and Moses kind of looked at it in the corner of his eye and after he moved a little ways, he looked at it again. It still didn't burn up. And he's like, what is this strange fire? So he stopped and he went over and took a look at it. And that's when God spoke to him. He said, take off your sandals. for You're standing on holy ground. So he manifested as the burning bush. And you could say, well, it's not a burning bush. God is not a burning bush. Or when God spoke to the Israelites, he said, hey, get back. Put a rail, a fencing up around the mountain. Don't come close to it. Have your animals get back. Everything. And then I'm going to come down on the mountain and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk to Moses and so forth. So they, and the people were like, why can't God talk to us directly? Why can't we hear from God? We don't want him just talking to you. Moses said, okay. 
That's what we're going to do. So that's what God told them to do. And But when God finished talking to them, all the earthquakes and all the stuff, the fanfare that God had brought with them, and again, it's the manifestation of God. Finally, the people said, you know, Moses, tell God it's okay if you talk to us. We don't need him to talk to us anymore. So they understood right away that God is holy and not somebody to be playing around with. And, and not only that, he's separate from them. He's lifted up separate from them. And they needed to see that separation. And we saw it also in the sanctuary where there was an outer court, there was a holy place, there was a most holy place. And who could go in there and when and so forth. All of those spoke of who God was. So there are manifestations. But God says in his last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And this is the manifestation that he will have throughout eternity. It's the son. And if you wanted to see it in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, I'll read it real quick and we can move forward. Ephesians 2, there's another place to see it. It says at the end, verse 21, In him, the whole building, in Christ, that is, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So there it is. There's another way he says it. In Ephesians 2, this is the eternal state. What God is causing us to become in the eternal state. Us merged with the person of Christ and all that he is and has. Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. And so we could ask the question, when does all this happen? It's not worth comparing. With the glory that will be revealed in us. When? Does all this happen? Back to Ephesians for an answer to that. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll just say when it happens up front. It's the second coming. I know you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, when we're raptured, right? There's, there's going to be, yeah, but when he's referring to here is the second coming. Let's look at it. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. Well, it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So, so that says a lot. So when he talks about this purposed in Christ, again, Christ is a vessel upon which God would execute this plan where we will be conformed to his image and his likeness. And that conformity has to do with the baptism of the Spirit. That And the results of it, are numerous, but it's part of a plan, a mystery plan that was hidden from all the Old Testament, from angels, but now this plan is in effect. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. In other words, it was his plan. He's very pleased to execute the plan and to reveal, finally, from hiding it all those ages and generations and uh, dispensations, past dispensations, he is pleased to reveal it to us, what he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. Now what he's talking about here is what he describes here 
in the next phrase, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, and notice this, under Christ. So this is when, so, so this says a lot, of, a lot, because what's happening in heaven is there's still discord in heaven. There's still the evil angels. Uh, I know Satan can still access the throne of God. Satan can still go to heaven and, and he accuses the brethren day and night, it says. But so but what this happens is Christ, Satan will be thrown out of heaven and earth, he, Christ will come down, he will bind Satan and throw him off the earth and into the abyss and that uh, Christ will be all in all. So it says to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. That's what's key. So that's not going to happen until the second coming. So we should, we should all know that. And also you have 8, Romans 8. Here's another one, uh, Romans 8, just to note, and verse 21. So Rome, Romans 8, 21 says that the creation itself, well, let's read 20. For the cre I always say that. I'm going to just include 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Now, when it says this, it's personifying the creation as though, as though it were... Uh, like a person, right? Having the same types of principles and, uh, you know, emotions and so forth. Hold on a sec. I do hear some... thought I heard some background noise, so I, sorry. I'm, I'm good. So, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. So, this subjected to frustration is the curse on the earth. It is what happened when God cursed the ground, the earth, for Adam's original sin. I notice it's not by its own choice. You know, we were subjected to having a sin nature, born spiritually dead, and born condemned. We were subject, and is it by our own choice? No, we were sold as slaves to sin by what Adam did. So not only did, you know, that happen, if you go back to Genesis, you can read that, that what happened when Adam sinned, and we learn that through that, not only are we sinners because of what Adam did, but we're born spiritually dead in a, under the wrath of God and condemned. Right? These are all the bad news, things that we need to understand about ourselves when we come to Christ. But so the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's the Father. He put the, cre the creation in this situation. Creation just didn't devolve or evolve into this situation. God put this on the creation because it was his will. It was the will of him. And we could say that about ourselves too, right? Why were we born spiritually dead under the wrath of God and all sin nature and condemned? It's because that's the way God set it up. You can't say, well, I sinned and that's how I got. No, all that happened to you when you were born. You didn't have a choice in the matter, did you? So in the same way, creation was subjected to frustration by the wind, 
by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. And notice, he didn't just do it. Hey, this is a trash heap. I'm going to just throw the world. The, you know, he says, in hope. So that in hope is the same hope we're going to read later in verse 24, where it says, for in this hope we were saved. We'll get to that at an, as we go forward. And we've talked about it before. But we'll get to it again. Verse 21, here's the verse, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's the corruption that it has. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So when we think about that for a sec, we stop for a minute just to think about that what this glory is going to happen when the second coming happens. So, so if you think about when the second coming happens, the earth will get a renewal. In fact, it is even called a new earth and a new heavens. But we know that it's not over because people are still in the millennium. The people will still be born with sin natures. But there will definitely be uh, changes in the topography of the earth. There will be no more uh, sea. There will be no desert there. There will be, you know... God will uh, cause different things to happen in the, in the earth. There's no starvation, and there's there's going to be beautiful all over the the world, right? So all of these these changes are going to happen when Christ comes back comes back to rule in the millennium. So this is what he means is going to be released. So the the curse is going to be released from the earth when Christ comes back at the second coming to reign. That is after the tribulation period. So just a note. So we know that it has an effect on creation. Right? When he says the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's 18. Well, this is part of the glory that will be revealed in us. It's revealed when? At the second coming. Now we may have it prior to the second coming. Right? When we get the our adoption as sons, we're going to have whatever God gives us. It's not like a light switch where we say, oh, we're going to the second coming, let's turn it on. Not so. So I want you to turn to, there's another verse that also links this. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, let's go there. If you got your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I used to tease people and say, yeah, that's in the Old Testament, but I don't do that anymore. Nobody turns, nobody's turning their people would be flipping their Bibles, they'd be all in the Old Testament looking for Thessalonians. Some of these they're hard to find sometimes, but it's in the New Testament, trust me. Second Thessalonians chapter one. And let's start looking at uh, let me see, verse five. So so this, here's what it says All this is evident that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So remember, we're talking about the kingdom of God, that period where we show up and because of what Christ is and the glory that he will, be, he will reveal is also part of what we have. So verse, let's continue. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, I'm sorry, our Lord Jesus. I get excited, sorry. <laughs> Verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I just want to stop for a minute. and We're going to read more. Actually, we're going to read to the end. But just, if you don't have a thought of witnessing to those people who reject the gospel, who don't know the gospel, you need to. Because it is going to be horrible for people who refuse to believe in Christ and end up on the wrong side of God's justice. Just notice God has given us as an opportunity here to help. As, as Not only is he doing everything he can possibly do, he's also enlisted us as ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. And you ought to have a burden for souls here. We ought to be praying for the unbelievers, hoping that they come to Christ, hoping that God will give them a spirit of repentance, those who are trapped in the devil's schemes, because it is important. If you know the truth. So anyway, let's keep going. Verse 10. On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Notice, this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. In other words, that's what he wants from us. That we do walk worthy of the calling we have received here. That's important. Verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, very sobering scripture. And I would hope, you know, as we think about our sojourn here in the earth. Uh, it is impactful upon our motivation. We're going to have to quit. I know it's 9-11, but we, we, we'll get to more of this next week. And we're almost done with the thoughts here. But there's a couple more things to, uh, probably a couple more scriptures I'd like to go through. But I don't want to rush. And we'll take our time and think about what we already covered. So I'll stop and pause to see if there are any questions before we close. All right, so it sounds like yeah, we're, sure. all right. We we will continue. Let's have let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. Again, we don't know why. We don't truly understand it all, but we we are so grateful that you chose us in Christ before time began. And we, what you have made of us, we we don't know. We don't 
fully know, but we understand from the knowledge that you gave us that it is an awesome position in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the adoption to sonship. And as we unfold and discover more about who we are in Christ, it is not only intriguing, but it is uh, part of what you consider the deep things of God, our sonship. So we thank you for uh, including us in this plan, this glorious plan, this glorious riches that are associated with it. And we pray for each person that is here in the church universal that we might all represent you and the heart that you have shown us and given to us so that we can be your witnesses on the earth of uh, this great dispensation called the church. So it's in Christ's name, it's for his sake that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.